Okay. Well, good morning, everybody. Why don't we go ahead and get seated and we can get into our lesson today. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 10 this morning. So uh, let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, once again and just give you praise for uh, this opportunity that we have as a body of believers to come together, uh, to worship you, Lord, to fellowship together, to uh, hear your word being taught. We just pray, Lord, that you would uh, just honor this time, Lord, that, that uh, this time would be one that is uh, profitable and, and glorifying to you. We just pray, Lord, that you would uh, just give us understanding into Daniel as we dig into these uh, verses in, in chapter 10. Just pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding of the uh, things that you have for us in the future. And Lord, we just thank you for the way that you communicate to us through your word. Lord, I just pray now, once again, that you would be with us as we uh, dig into this uh, wonderful chapter. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm going to start our study into the 10th chapter of the book of Daniel this morning. We're nearing the end of this great book, believe it or not. And you might say, well, but we have three chapters left, which is a quarter of the book. Um, And you'd be right, it is a quarter of the book. But another way to look at it is that we've come to the last vision of the book of Daniel. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 all deal with a single vision given to the prophet Daniel in the latter portion of his life. Um, so there's one more vision given, or at least one more given that we have recorded that we need to look at in the history of the nation of Israel. So when you look at the nation of Israel, particularly in the last 2,000 years or so, even further back than that, there are many things that you could say, many words that you could use to describe their existence, but without a doubt, one of the words would have to be the word conflict. The Jews have been a people embroiled in conflict since the Babylonian captivity, really the Assyrian captivity even before that. Um, They have been a nation surrounded by other nations, nations that have fought around them, nations that have fought with them, nations that have tried to annihilate them. Now God has not allowed these nations to succeed in their annihilation, but he has allowed them to succeed in causing them great conflict. And if you remember Back in our last uh, study in chapter 9, we saw in the prophecy given to Daniel in that chapter that conflict was going to be a major part of their existence for at least the next 490 years. But as we talked about, it went even beyond that length of time. And I just remember why I'm having such a hard time looking at my notes. I didn't have these on. (laughs) We saw in the last part of verse 26... Uh, Daniel 9, 26, even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined, he said. Israel's existence, clear up until the end times, that 70th week that we talked about, would be characterized by war and by desolation. We look at their existence today, while they do have a presence in their land, but not completely in control of all that truly belongs to them, We see this in their current state that this is true. They are not at peace. They are never really at ease and conflict is always present around them. It's it's always close at hand, even today. Turn with me over to the Gospel of Luke for a minute. The 21st chapter of Luke. We will be in Daniel today. But look with me at what Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 21. Down in verse 9 of Luke 21. Here Jesus says, And when you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, but for those things must first take place. But the end does not follow immediately. And this here is a parallel passage to what we've recently seen in Matthew 24 in the previous weeks. We've been to Matthew 24 a few times. He's telling them here that wars and disturbances will come but that they should be expected, and they will not necessarily indicate the time of the end, at least not yet. And just as an aside, I was thinking about this when I was reading through this passage this week, I've heard people this week, the last couple weeks, talk about 
the recent war that's going on, Russia, Ukraine, everybody's heard of that, right? Knows that's going on. And making comments about how can such a thing like war happen today? Aren't we more advanced? Aren't we more civilized? Don't we know better than to have one country invade another country today? Well, we see here in this passage in Luke, Jesus tells his disciples that wars will be a thing until the very end. Until the messianic kingdom is established on earth, there will be wars going on. Without Christ, men will always find a reason to kill and to destroy, and that will go on all the way until the end when Jesus Christ returns to take back his creation and establish his throne upon the earth. So as believers, if we hear people making comments like that, that should be a good opportunity for us to share with them why it is that these things happen and how important it is to believe in the gospel. Because it's only in Christ and in God's kingdom plan that wars will ever be a thing of the past. But like I said, that's an aside. I didn't want to take too long to say that, but it's just a thought that came to my mind this week. But this here in Luke 21 is talking about what will happen to Israel in their future. He then goes into greater detail in describing the times of the end by saying in verse 10, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. These are parts of the signs that in Matthew it says are the birth pangs. The signs of things that will occur just prior to the end, just prior to the 70th week of Daniel. He then explains what will happen during that 70th week. And then at the end of verse 24, we have what we've seen many times already in our study of Daniel, when down at the very end of verse 24, he says, "...and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled." From the time that Jesus is saying this, really all the way from the time of the Babylonian captivity, you could even take it back that far, this was and is and will be true of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the holy city of God, will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. That city, and as we've seen many times, the city and the people are practically inseparable in Scripture. But that city will have nothing but conflict at the hands of the Gentiles until the end of the 70th week. And that conflict will continue to grow and it will continue to worsen until that 70th week when it will get to be as bad as the world has ever seen a conflict become. That 70th week is the seven-year period that we commonly call the Great Tribulation because that's what the Lord calls it in Matthew 24, 21. Now, as we come to this final vision of Daniel in the last three chapters of the book, we're going to see in vivid detail the conflict of Jerusalem during this time. We're going to see, as God reveals it to Daniel, just what kinds of things Israel is going to have to endure during their last years on earth and how they're going to suffer at the hands of the Gentile nations. This vision of Daniel lays out for us the history of Israel, both past and future history. Remember, we've talked about that before, too. You know how precise this vision is? There's a good indication of just exactly how precise this vision is. Do you know how specific these things are that we're going to see here? This vision is so precise, this vision is so accurate, that the majority of people who want to claim that the book of Daniel is a fraud the book of Daniel is a fake, do so because of these final three chapters. Remember way back when we introduced the book, we said that there are many people that, that call Daniel a fraud, that call this book a fake. It's a fake book that couldn't have been written when people say that it was written, when, when it actually was written. And a lot of that doubt stems from the contents of just these chapters. The things that we read here are so precise from our historical point of view that liberal theologians cannot possibly accept or believe that Daniel wrote this in the 6th century B.C. They can't accept that anyone writing during that time period could have possibly written these things down that we see here. 
Because you can take what Daniel writes here in these chapters and then take a history book and match up line for line, fact for fact, many of the events that are presented here. And the only reason I use the word many is because some of them haven't happened yet, so we can't look at a history book for them. This vision in these last chapters is the main reason why the doubters refuse to believe that anyone other than someone living in at least the first century B.C. could have possibly written this book. That's how accurate these things are that we're going to be seeing in these chapters. And we'll see that as we go through it. Now, as we come to chapter 10, what we have here is the background or the introduction really to the vision itself. The vision doesn't actually begin until we get into chapter 11, but in chapter 11, um, or but in chapter 10, we have the setup for it. We've had a setup in each of Daniel's previous visions. They've been, they've been shorter, they've been quite as long as what we have here, um, but in this introductory chapter, Daniel is going to be visited by some heavenly visitors. And the way in which he's visited is going to be very reminiscent of the way in which a couple of New Testament writers were visited as well. And these visitors are going to bring Daniel the last of his wonderful prophecies that we have written in this book. As we've seen throughout our study, seen throughout the book of Daniel, the prophecies that are given to Daniel are somewhat progressive in nature, right? We've, we've taken them in order. They've come at different points of time in Daniel's life. And what I mean by progressive is that there is a little more revealed in each one. Each one that Daniel's been given, he's been given a little more information. In chapter 2, we were introduced to four Gentile nations that would rule the world prior to the coming kingdom of God. But there really wasn't a lot of detail given there. In chapter 7, he was given the prophecy that dealt in more detail with those final four Gentile nations and what would be their end. We got into chapter 8, and we had the prophecy that dealt with two of those Gentile nations, Medo-Persia and Greece, and how Israel would be persecuted during a specific time within the Grecian Empire. Then in chapter 9, we had events that once again dealt with Israel, focused more predominantly on Israel, but predominantly we had events that pertained to the two phases of the Roman Empire which is the last world empire. And we learned that in chapter 2 and in chapter 7, right? As we've, we've learned more about this as we've gone along. And now in these final chapters, we're going to see events that span really all of those time periods. And the details are going to be broadened out and expanded to give us a much clearer picture of these things. Keep in mind, Daniel has received these prophecies over the course of many years, right? We can sit down and read through the book of Daniel in a day, less than a day, an hour, a couple hours, whatever. But roughly 18 years have passed in Daniel's, from Daniel's point of view just since the prophecy that was given to him in chapter 7. Between chapter 7 and where we are now, there's been an 18-year span. And you think that we've taken a long time to get to the last prophecy in Daniel. Well, Daniel had to wait even longer than that. So look with me at the beginning of verse 1 of Daniel chapter 10. It says here, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. Now the timing, once again, we have the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now remember the prophecy in chapter 9 was in the first year of Cyrus. Okay? Now we're talking two years past this. So this is two years later. That's not so long, right? That's hardly significant at all, right? What, what could happen in two years? Well, quite a bit actually has happened in those two years. First of all, Daniel is retired by this point in time. I'm sure he had a big celebration. He had the balloons. I see we have balloons today. Daniel probably had balloons for his retirement party. No. But anyway, Daniel has retired. He's no longer in the king's service at that time. So why do I say that? How do we know? Well, remember all the way back to chapter 1, at the very end of the chapter in verse 21, it said there, and Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Now, some scholars point to this verse to prove that the final chapters of Daniel are forgeries. We go back to the people that say Daniel's a fraud, right? People say, well, it says right in the, the first chapter that Daniel only lasted until the first year of Cyrus, so how can he be given something in the third year? How could Daniel have received a message in that third year when he, if he died in the first year? Well, note that this doesn't say that Daniel died in the first year 
of Cyrus. It says he continued until the first year. And there are several possibilities for this, with death being one of them, but unlikely because he received a prophecy two years later. But it could also mean that he lasted through Babylon and up until the first year of the Persians. And probably more likely, it means that the service that Daniel provided to the king, Babylonian and Persian, went into the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. If you remember from the context of that verse back in chapter 1, what was in view was how he was in the king's personal service. It was talking about Daniel being brought into the king's personal service. So most likely, that's what that continuation has to do with. He continued in king's service until the first year of Cyrus. So in other words, Daniel retired from service sometime in that year, and he was no longer in the king's employ now two years later. Now why would Daniel retire from service? It was a good gig, right? He was head of one of the top three people in the, in the country, in the nation. Well, he was also between 85 and 90 years old at this time. I mean, let's face it, most of us wouldn't make it in our jobs working until 85 or 90. I hope that I don't make it to 85 or 90. I, I shudder to think of myself working the same job when I'm 85. But, but it's actually quite remarkable that he was still at it even at this stage of his life, and he was faithfully serving God within the halls of government of these two nations, even at that point in time. But if you remember back to the events of chapter 6 of Daniel as well, right after Medo-Persia took over from Babylon, you think, see, why, why was Daniel not in the king's service anymore? Well, maybe it has something to do with his new boss trying to kill him by throwing him into a lion's den. You think that might be one of those parting of ways kind of events, but... But another thing that most likely led to his retirement as well, and that was the very thing that he was praying for at the beginning of chapter 9, and the, the end of the captivity for Judah and the restoration of the people to the land. Turn with me for a second over to Ezra, the first chapter of the book of Ezra, and we'll see what took place around this same time period, right? You can match some of these things up in scripture, different time periods. But look at Ezra chapter 1, at the very beginning, verse 1, it says, Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, we're matching up time periods, right? Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So what is he doing? What's Cyrus doing here? He's issuing a decree to allow all those who belong in Judah to return to Jerusalem. They can go back to Jerusalem. They can rebuild the temple. What did God have Jeremiah tell the people? He said that they would be in captivity for 70 years. In the first year of Cyrus, it was very close to that 70-year period, which is why Daniel was praying in the first place. If you remember, back in our discussion at the beginning of chapter 9. For God to fulfill his promise about the 70 years. Well, guess what? God fulfills his promises, right? Big surprise. Not a big surprise. So a significant event has occurred, not only for the Jews living in Babylon, but also in the life of Daniel. Between the time of his first prophecy, or uh, the prophecy in chapter 9, and this one, there's been a decree issued that they can return back to Jerusalem. They've been allowed to return back to the land. And you can say, of course, at this time, two years later, all the Jews are back in the land of Israel and everyone is living, happy, living happily ever after, right? Not quite. It's not quite that happy. In the following chapter of the book of Ezra, we're told about 42,000 Jews actually went back to Jerusalem, which sounds like a lot. 42,000 people is a lot. The only problem is, by some accounts, that number represented probably less than 10% 
of the Jewish population. Some accounts even put it as low as 2 or 3% of the Jewish population. In other words, even at the end of that 70 years, when given the opportunity that God had promised them that they could go back into the land, something that they had prayed for, something that they had longed for for 70 years, most of them didn't go back. They stayed where they were. Why? Why would they stay? Well, for many of the Jews, Babylon had become their home. Most of them probably had never even been to Jerusalem. They had been born in captivity. Most of them probably saw Babylon as their only home. This is where they lived. Remember, Daniel came to Babylon himself as a youth, and now he was between 85 and 90 years old. The Jews had prospered in captivity, thanks primarily to God putting Daniel in a position of authority. And in many cases, they had become thoroughly paganized. If we know anything about the history of Israel, they tended to do that, right? They get involved in, a, in another group, they get involved in another culture, and they just accept it wholeheartedly. We even have evidence of that in the book of Daniel. Remember back in chapter 3 when the people were supposed to worship the golden image, and this was even relatively early on in the, in the history of them being in Babylonian captivity. People were supposed to bow down to this golden image. There were three people that didn't do it. There were other Jewish youths in the king's program, but only Daniel's three friends refused to bow down. Remember in chapter 6, this is much later on, when it was illegal to worship any god but the king, only Daniel got in trouble for remaining faithful to God, thrown into a lion's den. So there wasn't a lot of faithfulness to be found amongst the Jews, not that we have recorded anyway. So now here we are, two years after the Jews were allowed to return, and most of the Jews are still in Babylon. And Daniel, as we'll see, is still in Babylon himself at this time. Look at verse 1 again. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. A message revealed to Daniel, name was Belteshazzar. This was Daniel's Babylonian name, if you remember from back in chapter 1, given to him all the way back there when he was indoctrinated into this program, or they tried to indoctrinate him into the program. This would have been the name that he was known of most of his life, a name given to him by the Babylonians to try to make him forget about his past life. It was meant to honor the Babylonian gods. But I believe it's given here and included in this section so that there's no mistake that this is the Daniel we're talking about here. Either Jew or Gentile reading this would know that this is the right guy. It was Daniel who went by Belteshazzar. And it's during this third year that a message was given to him, revealed to him. What kind of message was it? It says, and the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. It was a message that Daniel understood, first and foremost. He understood it. He recognized its significance. Daniel was probably getting pretty good at recognizing important messages that came to him. He's had quite a few of them come his way. He'd gotten quite a few. There were some real doozies, and this one's really no different. Verse 1 really is a summary of the events all the way through these last three chapters, chapters 10 through 12. This really encompasses it all. This is kind of what the message is or what type of message it is. First of all, it says that it was a true message. Now, we might say, well, it's in the Bible, so of course it's true, and we'd be right. If it's in Scripture, we know it's true. But by saying this, Daniel is in effect giving this prophecy an affirmation of it being genuine as he's writing this. This isn't a story that he's come up with on his own. He's testifying that this is really what happened and that he really received this prophecy from the sources that he claims, which we'll, we'll see those in just a minute. And therefore, the message is absolutely true. It's similar to someone prefacing their statement with, now I'm going to tell you the absolute truth about this. It's not that we would assume that they were lying otherwise, but a statement like that provides really a sense of urgency or of importance. If somebody comes to you and says, now I'm going to tell you an absolutely true statement, you know that they're, in, they're, they're uh, emphasizing the importance of it, that they see it as something that's vitally important. And what else is this message? It says it's one of great conflict. 
Now, if you have a version of the King James Bible, then your translation probably says something a little bit different about than conflict. It says that pointed time was long. And that's because this is one of those words, and we've seen a few of these words in our study of Daniel, that can be translated differently based on, con- on context. However, in this context, most commentators agree that this is really talking more about the substance of the message instead of the time frame of the message. And this is really referring to the message itself and how the message is about suffering. It's about conflict. It's about wars. All involving nations of the world and specifically pertaining to the nation of Israel. And we've seen this already, that within God's plan for the future of the nation, that conflict plays a major role. And Daniel, and and it will play a role from here on out as well in our study of these last chapters. And finally, the last thing that we have in this summary of verse 1 is that Daniel understood it all, which can only indicate that God was giving him insight into this particular prophecy. For us as believers, I mean, we look, we look at this today and we think, you know, we can, we can understand this because today we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us and we also have the benefit of history to help us understand what we read here. Not that we have to rely on history. I mean, we've seen some other parts of Daniel where things, we can't find things in history, but we still know them to be true. But we at least have that benefit, that crutch, you could say, of seeing, yeah, these things all played out exactly. But Daniel had neither of those things. Daniel didn't have the benefit of history, and he didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That was not the Holy Spirit's ministry in those days. So for him to understand all this that we're going to see was truly a sovereign act of God, God giving him this ability to understand this. So as we come to verse 2, we see again what Daniel was doing just prior to the message coming to him. It says, verse 2, In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. And you notice now that, there's, that the point of view switches to the first person, right? For Daniel, he, he referred to himself in the third person in verse 1, but now he talks about himself in the first person. I, Daniel, why? Well, he's giving testimony here. This is what happened to him personally. And we see that it doesn't start out on a happy note. He says, I had been mourning for three entire weeks, 21 days. Now, some of you might ask yourself the same question that I think I asked when I first read through this. Could this be 21 years? Because he says says three entire weeks, right? Why would we ask that? Well, in the last chapter, the previous chapter, we just got through talking about weeks being seven-year periods, right? And now in the next chapter, he talks about three weeks. Could this be 21 years? Why is it not... The same, and yes, it is the same word used in both chapters. Well, if you remember our discussion of the weeks in chapter 9, we said that the, this word for sevens represented had to be taken from the context, and the context really determines what we're talking about. Well, here, the context is clearly days, because the word entire or full that appears here as well because of that word, we know that this is days. Now, some translations, like I think ESV, doesn't have the word entire there. It just says three weeks. Uh, but here, in Hebrew, there is a word that New American Standard has, and others translate as well, as entire, three entire weeks. Now, why do I beat this horse? Well, because the word entire in the New American Standard is translated in other places as the word Day. So I, don't, I really couldn't tell you why it's translated tire in, as entire when it's the word for day. Um, and, but this word is used over 2,300 times in the Old Testament. And by way of example, I'll just read you one example of that. In Genesis 1.5, it says, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. That's the word for entire. That's our word. So the context really here really is clear. These are weeks of days, and there are three of them. So for three weeks, 21 days, Daniel is in mourning. Now the question is, when you hear that Daniel's in mourning for three weeks, why? What's he mourning over? It says he's mourning, but it doesn't say what he's mourning over. Well, I think it's pretty safe to say that he's mourning over Israel again, most likely because of the refusal to go back to the land, or at least the majority of them refusing to do so. 
And there are several reasons why I think that's what he's mourning over. The first one being, he's about to be visited in his time of mourning and given a message that concerns Israel. What was he doing back in chapter 9, at the very beginning of chapter 9, when he was given a message then? He was praying for Israel, praying for them to return in sackcloth and ashes, it said. What are sackcloth and ashes a sign of? Mourning. He was in mourning for Israel then as well. He was on his knees, praying in earnest for God to make it possible for the people to return to Jerusalem. And at that time, just after he began praying for that, the angel Gabriel was sent to visit him and touched him before he could even finish that message or that prayer. So there's a precedent for God to provide Daniel with important information while he's praying for Israel. When Daniel was mourning over Israel then, that's when God sent that prophecy to him. And the second reason, another reason, if you look down at verse 4, we, we see that this mourning took place during the first month. At the end of this period, he's visited on the 24th day of the first month. Okay, which means that he started on the third day of the first month. So what? Why do we care? The first month, the first month was the month of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. On the 15th of the month of Nisan is when Passover takes place. Then after that was seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Daniel was in mourning, as we'll see, fasting right through Passover. And this feasting time. What does that indicate? I think it's a good indication that there weren't enough Jews in Babylon that cared enough to even celebrate Passover. There was no celebration of Passover and the subsequent feast for Daniel probably to even take part in. And that's a good indicator of the spiritual condition of the people and what was going on uh, with the Jews at that time. Which really leads us to the third reason he was mourning, or yeah, the third reason he was mourning. This morning was Daniel praying on behalf of the indifference and the ongoing sin of his people. Those left with him in Babylon, and once again, Daniel is putting his people before himself and praying, fasting, mourning on behalf of the Jewish people, not for himself, but for them. Now, some people wonder why Daniel would still be in Babylon at this time, right? We've talked about 42,000 went back. Daniel obviously wasn't one of them, and we'll see that because he's still here. Why didn't Daniel go back? If we talk about how the spiritual condition of the people is that they stayed, well, Daniel stayed, so why is he still there? Well, many think that it's because he was too old. Um, He didn't want to make the trip, or he couldn't physically make the trip. Maybe he was unable to at 85 or 90. Others think that maybe it was because of the indifference of his people that he stayed behind, and perhaps that's why he even retired when he did. Daniel saw his job now as trying to influence the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem, trying to get them to return home, trying to get them back to go back from Babylon to their land. Now, we don't know that for sure because we're not told. It doesn't really say. And we won't know it until we get a chance to ask Daniel in glory someday. Why did he stay in Babylon? But I think that Daniel was definitely praying on behalf of his people and was going to spend his last breath in concern for their well-being. And that seems to be his primary focus. In any case, one thing we know for sure, he was definitely in mourning at this time. And in verse 3, we see what this entails. It says, I did, not eat any tasty, I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. When it says that he was in mourning, it doesn't mean that he was just sad for three weeks, just down in the dumps. No, this was full-on official fast that he was putting himself through. He was depriving himself for three full weeks. First thing it says is, I did not eat any any tasty food. This would have been the good stuff, the fancy food. Throughout most of his life, Daniel would have been used to quite a few comforts. He was a very important person in the lands of both Babylon and Persia. Eating tasty food would not have been anything new to him. 
Now, early on in his training program, if you remember back in chapter one, he didn't eat the king's choice food because it had been offered up to the pagan gods. He would not defile himself with that food. But I think there's little doubt that he had found a way over the last 70 years to eat an adequate diet that would not have been defiling. Um, He had that kind of pull and authority within the kingdom to probably find some tasty food to eat. But here he says he denied himself that type of food. There are fasts that do not require or do not involve denying all kinds of foods and they just involve denying yourself the delicacies. I was always surprised when I heard that. Somebody say, I'm fasting, and then you find out they're still eating, but they're just denying themselves certain kinds of foods. But oftentimes it involves denying yourself participation in just the public events or celebrations, and Daniel not participating in Passover may be a big part of that as well. But he then takes it a step further, and he says, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth. And this would have been the meat and potatoes, so to speak, of the diet. This would have been the basics. This would have been the necessities of life. I would take it to mean from this statement that during these three weeks, Daniel went without food, maybe surviving on nothing more than water at this point in time. So as you can see, he was fully involved in mourning here. One more thing that's mentioned, he says, nor did I use any ointment at all. Now, this may seem like a strange thing to add, Um, at least to us, but in this culture, this was something that was significant. Ointments were used as a means to not only deodorize, because they didn't take baths every day, um, but also as a sign of joy and social sophistication. Proverbs 27.9 says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. It was similar to our practice of of uh, fixing your hair a certain way, putting on your best clothes to go out in a social setting for you ladies, putting on makeup, that sort of thing. This was seen throughout different parts of Scripture, such as Luke seven forty six, where the woman is anointing Jesus' feet with perfume and he rebukes the owner of the house for not anointing his head with oil as was customary. It was a very customary thing to use these things. David, when he was finished mourning over the loss of his child that he had with Bathsheba, the first thing that he did in 2 Samuel 12, 20 is washed and anointed himself, thus indicating a denying of anointing himself during his time of mourning as well. So this was a very common thing to do during a mourning period. So what do we have here? We have Daniel. We have Daniel, an 85-year-old man who had, hadn't eaten for 21 days and he hadn't anointed himself at all. He's probably not in the most pristine state at this point in time. Probably uh, not a lot of fun to be around either. We, we use the word hangry these days. I don't know if Daniel got hangry from being hungry, but um, yeah, probably not a lot of joy to be around Daniel. But what's the point of this? What's, what is Daniel gaining by fasting in this manner? Is he gaining favor with God by fasting? By fasting and mourning as some people try to do today? No, I I wouldn't say that's what he's doing. Our actions do not gain us favor with God. There are certain things that we do out of obedience to God that he is pleased with, but we do not incur God's favor by doing such things as fasting or denying ourselves material possessions or material things. You know... um, that's, uh, that's something that's true today as it would have been back in Daniel's day. So that's not what Daniel's doing. Daniel is coming before God with a singular focus here. He's crying out to God with a concerned heart and a sense of acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God, and that is causing him to lose interest in everything else. I think that's what's going on here. If I'm, if I'm in a position where I'm concerned for my family, I might forget to eat. I might lose my appetite. If I've gone through a tragedy of some kind and it's consuming my thoughts, then how my hair looks or how often I've bathed is probably not going to be first and foremost on my mind. And that's the way I think to look at Daniel's period of mourning. It has consumed him to the point where nothing else matters except for the spiritual condition of his people, of Israel. And that kind of devotion and faith will honor God. Look at verse 4. 
And on the 24th day of the first month, while I, was on, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man. And here we get a glimpse of where Daniel was at this time. And unfortunately, we have no idea why he was here. We saw this earlier. We're, we're on the 24th of Nisan, the first month of the Jewish calendar. And at this time, after three weeks of fasting, Daniel is on the bank of the Tigris River. There were two great rivers in Babylon, the Tigris and the Euphrates. The Tigris was about 60 miles east of the city of Babylon. And what's interesting to me is that of the two rivers, the Tigris was actually further, the one that was further away from Israel. So we don't really know why Daniel was there. A couple of possibilities. Maybe Daniel retired there after his service to the king was over. Maybe this is where he settled down. Maybe he had a nice riverside home on the Tigris. Maybe Daniel was out finding Jews. Maybe um, he, he might have made it his mission to go out and find the Jews that had not yet returned and started ministering them to go back to Jerusalem. So maybe he was just out and this was the area that he was in while he was looking for people. Both of those are nothing more than speculation. I fully admit that. And the fact is we don't know why he was there. But it says that he was there. So that's where he was. And while he's there, he looks up and he sees a man. It says a certain man. Now we've seen before where Daniel has seen a man. But it wasn't really a man at all. And it was an angel. That happened to him in chapter 8. And the man was the angel Gabriel. And then it happens again in chapter 9, and he saw the same man, Gabriel, again. Now those are similar situations, but here he doesn't say that this is Gabriel. Remember in chapter 9, even though it was 12 years later, he makes it clear that he recognized Gabriel when he saw him again. Right? 12 years had passed between those two visions, and when he sees Gabriel again, he said, that's Gabriel. I know that that's Gabriel. I recognize him as Gabriel. And he knew him from his previous vision. But here, there's no indication that he has that same kind of recognition. Although he does go into much greater detail with what this man looks like. Continue looking in verse 5 with me. It says, A certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz, his body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. A certain man indeed. This is quite the description of this guy. Right? That he sees. Now prior to this description, Daniel uses the word behold, which is a word of exclamation. Right? Sort of like saying... You know, we could say, check this out or picture this, the way that he describes him. And you can see why he wants to draw attention to what this certain man looks like. Now, with this description, who can this be? Who is this man? Well, we'll get this out of the way right now. Is this just a man? Could this be Daniel's neighbor from the next house up along the Tigris River? No, this isn't just a man. This was not an ordinary man. This was a heavenly visitor that Daniel was seeing here. So who was it? Well, some say that it was Gabriel. Some say that it was Michael, right? We haven't seen Michael yet. We'll see him a little bit later, but we haven't seen him yet. Some say it's another angel that's not named, but has equal rank with Gabriel or Michael. But I don't believe that it's any of those. And as you can probably guess, I'm going to tell you why I don't believe that it's any of those. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 1. We see in Revelation chapter 1 another man who is given a glimpse of the future, and he sees a very similar sight. Revelation chapter 1, look it down at verse 12, where the Apostle John says this. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a, gir with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze. And when it, was, and when it has been caused to glow in a furnace... And his voice was like the sound of many waters. 
And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. What are we seeing here? What was John seeing here that he's describing to us? We're seeing John visited by the glorified Christ. He's visited by Jesus himself. Dressed in a robe, girded with gold, eyes like flaming fire, feet like the glowing of burning bronze, a face like the sun, and a voice like the sound of many waters is what John saw. What do we have in Daniel 10? Dressed in white linen, girded with gold, eyes like torches, face like lightning, arms and feet like polished bronze, sound of his words like a tumult. Now, there are a few differences in the descriptions. Uh, It's not word for word the same. John sees his head and his hair like white wool. Daniel sees his body like barrel. But you can't deny these are very similar pictures of the ones who visited both Daniel and John. Two men sharing their own descriptions 600 years apart from each other just prior to them being given vital pieces of information regarding end times events. I believe that Daniel and John were both visited by the same person. Both were visited by the second person of the Trinity. The, second, uh, the difference being that John saw Christ in his post-resurrection glorified incarnate form while Daniel was seeing him in his pre-incarnate glory. That's what's referred to as a Christophany. Where Christ is appearing to Daniel as, as the angel, the messenger of God, as he was called in other portions of the Old Testament when he appeared. Now we need to get to a point where, we can, where we're going to wrap up today. So I just want to look at the description with you here before we finish for the day. Looking at the individual elements presented here, and we'll, we'll go over these briefly. Linen. Part of the description here. Fine white linen is often associated with heavenly visitors as well as the priest's garments. One thing to note, at the end of the tribulation period, when Christ returns with the church following, after, following along with him, we will be clothed in fine white linen garments. That will be us, his church following along with him. Christ himself will be clothed in a robe, but it will be a robe dipped in blood. And I believe the idea would, that it would be a white robe as well, but obviously being dipped in blood changes it from being a white robe. The whiteness of the linen is representative of holiness. He mentions the gold of Uphaz here that was around his waist, girded up the linen garment. Uphaz is a word that, quite frankly, we don't really know what it means or what it indicates. It could be some type of gold, Probably gold from a particular region called Uphaz. But we just frankly don't know what that region is. That's not a region that's, that's well known or that's known. The only other time the word is used is in Jeremiah 10.9 where it talks about silver from Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. But the presence of gold could very well be symbolic of sovereignty, the sovereignty of him. Body like beryl. Beryl was a clear, yellowish, shining gem. Some liken it to topaz, which could indicate the glory of God. It says his face with appearance of lightning, a very bright or powerful face showing the power that he has. Eyes like flaming torches. The flames coming out of his eyes could represent the judgment that he brings. If you remember back in the vision that Daniel had in in chapter 7, there was fire around the throne of the Ancient of Days that was indicating judgment, and fire often represents judgment. But I think that here, with it coming out of his eyes, it's probably more indicating his his omniscience. Um, The flames from his eyes indicating that he's able to pierce through um, to find the truth. In other words, nothing is hidden from him. And that leads us to his arms and feet, like polished bronze, it says. And here, I think, is the indication of the judgment, the ability to destroy and trample all that stand opposed to him. A similar use of bronze is seen in Micah 4.13, where it says, Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hoofs I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many people. There's an idea of having the ability to crush with the bronze hoofs, and similar to the bronze feet that we see here. And finally, we have his voice, words like the sound of a tumult. 
a loud cacophonous noise, as we saw John put it in Revelation 1, like the sound of many waters. And we've probably all heard that sound. If you've ever been around a river or ever been around a waterfall, like, you know, you, you think of a river and you think, oh, if I get close to a river, it's, it'd be a very peaceful thing. But if it's a raging river, it's very loud. The sound can be almost deafening. It's a powerful voice that commands attention only to himself. So this is the man that Daniel sees on the bank of the Tigris, and he's mourning over the condition of Israel. And we'll end here for the day. We're a little early, but we'll end here for today because this is all I had. So, um, But we note that Daniel is going to be given a message here, a vision that will stretch once again until the end of the age, and it will be a message of great conflict. Um, Daniel will be overwhelmed by this message, but he will understand it. And quite frankly, I hope that that's our attitude and reaction here as well as we take a look at the awesome and magnificent sovereignty of the power of God. That's one of the reasons why I really enjoy these prophecies um, because they're awe-inspiring of the power of God and the things that he has in store for us. And especially as we look and we will see just how these things do match up in history, it's, a very, uh, it's very humbling to know the God that we serve. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, and Lord, we just give you praise once again for our study in Daniel. Thank you, Lord, for um, this book. I thank you for the, the truths that you revealed to Daniel and that you have preserved and that are shared with us in your word. I thank you, Lord, for giving us a knowledge of future events that we can study, that we can understand, and that we can use uh, to just know what is in store for us, for the world, for uh, the nation of Israel and to know how we should live in light of that. I thank you, Lord, so much for uh, the future hope that we have as your children. I thank you, Lord, for uh, just the, the time that we can, that we can study it and, the, and the, the time that we can understand it, giving us the ability to understand it. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to use that knowledge in our uh, everyday lives, Lord. Help us to understand the importance of sharing the gospel with people. Help us to understand... Um, just the confidence and the sovereignty uh, that you have, Lord, the confidence that we have in your sovereignty, and just knowing, Lord, that uh, nothing that can happen here on earth will affect where we will be in glory with you. We thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, for uh, just the plans that you have for us. Lord, we just pray that you'd be with us um, throughout the rest of the morning. Pray for the next hour as uh, Pastor Josh brings us the word once again. We pray that you'd give us understanding again, into your word, and that we would have a good time uh, worshiping you, Lord, that we would uh, understand your word, that we would be able to fellowship with one another, Lord, and that we would leave here encouraged and edified, Lord, and just be able to serve you um, for the following week. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.